Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Amy faithfully serving you uh, wherever you call her. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless her. We ask, God, that uh, you would also bless Regeneration as we seek to uh, serve you here in in our neighborhood as well as uh, all over the world. We just ask for your guidance, your wisdom to help us to keep our uh, eyes, our mind, our heart on you. In Jesus' name. 1 Samuel chapter 30 is where we've left off. Verse 10. So in Psalms chapter 40, verse 12, David wrote, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So how should believers live when these troubles overtake them? How should the believers in God live when these, when these things are kind of like overbearing on them and coming what 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 holds you up when when these things that you're facing are just too great for you to bear and so these are the type of questions that our our text deals with this morning so you see the lord takes his servants through trouble he always does even kings and so for more than 10 chapters david was hunted by king saul saul wanted to kill david and, and david was able to escape time and time again but but he was getting worn out and from this running and from this escaping and then so he decided to head over to the other side the, the enemy's side the dark side the philistines so that he could seek this refuge from saul and it, it wasn't a very wise decision but you can understand why he would do that right and it's really hard to live a life where around every corner you don't know if someone's hunting you and, and someone is hunting you and they want to kill you. And it gets really tiring to try to look for provisions for these 600 men that he are following him and his families and finding them shelter and finding them food and all this stuff. And, and it just gets really tiring to live this type of life where, where death is just around every corner. So he made this decision to go to the other side. And so he got himself in quite a pickle because by doing this, uh, by, by going to the king of Gath, uh, Achish, and he sought refuge and, and they built this relationship, Achish invited him to fight against his own people. So now he's stuck in this pickle, right? He, he has no clue how he's going to get out of this dilemma. But as he and his men are, are, are marching, some of the Philistine officers know, recognize who David is because they wrote that pop song about him, about how he killed tens of thousands. And then they contested because they're like, we don't want that guy fighting with us. That guy killed my men. That guy killed my brother. That guy killed my uncle. Whatever. And so he gets bailed out by the Philistines again because they were worried that David would turn on them on, in, on the battlefield so that he could get favor back from Saul. And so they just sent them back to Ziklag. So you talk about the relief that these guys felt. Just the answer to prayer that they felt. That David had no idea how he was going to get out of this mess, right? What Was he going to fight against his own people? And if he did that, he would be a traitor. He would be never installed as king. And Or was he going to escape? Was he just going to take off? And if he did that, then that would kind of tick Achish off. And not only would he have King Saul after him, he'd have King Achish after him. What do you do? Or do you turn on the Philistines in the middle of the battle and... You put the lives of those 600 men at risk as well as your own. What was he going to do? Can you imagine the relief that he and his men felt when they started making that three-day journey back to Ziklag because those guys didn't want them to fight with him? 
the relief. The, the, they were talking. They were praising God. Like, I can't wait to tell my wife like how God delivered me from it. I can't wait to tell my kids. And how they were looking forward to going home to their families to share with them how God delivered them from this mess only to find smoke in a distance. As they were walking back home just to see the burning and you can get this sense of the goosebumps coming up and they're like, what is happening? And some of the guys that had the energy after that three-day march running over there and trying to find out what is happening over there only to find that everything is burning. Your family is gone. Things are missing. Family's taken captive. How despairing after this deliverance. So how much more could David take? How much more bad news could this guy withstand? His own men were starting to turn on him as well, right? They wanted to to stone him. And you recall in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, which is the key verse there of uh, that first section of 1 Samuel chapter 30. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And then he went on from there. That's where he found his strength. That's where he goes from there. So how shall we live our lives when, when those troubles just seem to be piling on us exponentially, when, when we just get overburdened by this stuff? And we take a look at our text today, and the first thing we're going to see is that we live our life through providence. We live our life through providence, starting in verse 10. But David pursued he and his 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted across the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. He had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to his band. And when he had taken him down, behold, there they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. So we see God's providence here. But how is David and his men, how are they going to find the Amalekites who captured their loved ones? I don't know if you noticed this, but it's an Egyptian. And at first glance, this this doesn't really seem like a big deal, does it? Just find an Egyptian. But it's a big deal that they find this dying, sick Egyptian guy. But this is just so interesting. Because how did they just happen to come up upon a sick, dying Egyptian guy who was willing to lead them to the Amalekite encampment. It's the providence of God. It's the providence of God. See, see, the problem David would have faced here without the Egyptian is he could never find them. He wouldn't be able to find them. If it weren't for this sick, 
starving guy being found by David's guys. And David had no clue where to go. Right? He's found by David's men. It didn't say David found him. David probably was like, okay, where do I start looking? Go. And so they found him in the open. And this guy didn't eat or drink for three days, meaning this guy was close to death. You can't survive that long in, in the desert without water. Three days? Right? This guy's close to dying. And so this is just so interesting. It, it, the, the providence of God. Right? And this guy happened to be the, the, from the same crew that attacked Ziklag and, and the Amalekites. And, and so this poor, this sick, this dying servant, it's a, he's a big deal. And it's likely that during this burned city, David had no clue. All he did was he prayed to God and said, like, should I go after him? God said, yes, but God didn't say where. Okay, which direction? Right? And, and a lot of this evidence that probably would tell him that it's the Amalekites, it's probably burning. And you really didn't know because the Amalekites were kind of sacking all these other places. So if they left evidence from another place that they sacked, who knows who it was? Was it the last city or was it another city that took over that city and brought evidence of that city? Who knows? So if it wasn't for this guy, this Egyptian guy, David probably wouldn't even know who to go after. He doesn't even know who got them. But even if he did know, say like there's this thing that they just wrote down there like, Amalekites, right? And, and told them. Even if he did tell them. These guys are nomads. They didn't have a castle to go back to or a city to go back to. They didn't have a place that they stayed all the time. They were nomadic. So, so they moved from place to place and they wandered. So, so how was he even going to find them? And even if he did find them, would he find them in time? Would he find them in time that they didn't sell their families and their belongings to slavery to these different merchants and traders who were coming by? Dilemma. Right? So, so there, there, there wasn't a way to locate these people. They didn't have a way to spot... There, 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 there's no satellite thing like trying to spot them out. There's no infrared thing. The other thing is once their families are sold into slavery and one, there's no way to then locate them. There was no documentation to find out. So, so this time, you can see that this time was of the essence. David had to find them now. He had to go after them now. And so verse 11 tells us they found an Egyptian in the open country. The open country. Right? So I, I, I don't think they knew where they were going. I don't think they knew who they were looking for. I don't even think they even knew how long ago this thing happened. They didn't know anything. We're just told that David's men found this guy in the open country and that God told them to go after them, that he'll make it happen. And so this guy, he's a slave. His master was an Amalekite and he got sick. From what? We don't know. And I don't think David cared. David is just glad that this guy's Egyptian master just kind of casted him off. And the Egyptian's master just didn't care about this guy. Why would he? He just captured a bunch of new slaves, healthy ones. Why would he want to take care of this sick one? Just get rid of him. You got a bunch of new ones, right? He didn't care about this guy. Why, why keep this guy to slow you down, spending money, time, energy, resources to make him well again? Just leave him by the road. Let him die. He'll, he'll be dead within a day, three days. But this is the key to the whole story, right? Because they found this Egyptian guy dying here. They now have a lead. They now have a clue 
So they fed him, they, they nursed him back to health, they gave him something to drink, and then he got better, they asked him to talk. And what do you think this guy is going to do? Of course he's going to tell them. Man, I can't believe, that guy kicked me to the curb. I'll tell you where he's at. I want to get that guy back. Of course he's going to tell them, right? But, but this guy's not dumb. The slave is not dumb. He makes a deal with David. right? He, he says, I'll tell you, but you got to swear you're not going to kill me. And I'll tell you, but you got to swear that you're not going to give me back to that guy. Because he was going to kill me anyway. He just left me out there. So he will kill me. So I'm smart. Make the deal. I'll take it to them. Good deal for everybody. So the Egyptian leads them to the Amalekite camp. And in verse 16, And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And the Amalekites knew that the Philistines were off fighting. right? They were off fighting Israel. So, so they weren't too careful about setting up their defenses. They knew that those guys were fighting there. They're like, Who's going to attack us? We can take over all these towns, burn their stuff, take their possessions. They won't even have a clue. They're just fighting over there. By the time they find out, we'll be gone. We'll, we'll, we would have sold all their stuff. We, we, we're good. We don't have to set up anything. Let's just party. So they're just partying here. There's no real defenses set up. And so they're spread out all over the land. They're eating, drinking, dancing. And, and so David hit them. David hit him hard and throughout the entire night and throughout the entire day of the following night. And, and only 400 got away on camels. And you notice that David recovered everything. And then some. Right? He recovered all his stuff, but then he got the other stuff too. All from this providential twist of an Egyptian being left for dead and found in the open by some of David's men. And that discovery was the whole key, it was the key to this whole rescue. And in our troubles, God's people live by God's providence. Now what is providence? It's God providing for His people's needs, whatever those needs may be, that He provides for His people. And there are some of us that can tell our own stories of God's providence, of, of God providing an Egyptian slave. And you can find God's providence all over Scripture. You can find it all over church history. And I remember I was in college, and I was driving in L.A. on a freeway. So very few cars, right? I was in my 79 Nissan Sentra, and uh, it was a rusty red, uh, mostly rust. And uh, so I was in college, and I was driving. I don't remember where I was driving. I was driving probably to my parents' house. And so I'm driving the maximum speed limit because I'm a law-abiding citizen. And so I'm driving behind this truck that had a huge ladder on top of it. And this ladder fell off. And it fell off right in front of me in my lane. And this is a lot of traffic. I couldn't just turn. Like I, I looked my mirrors real quick. And uh, I couldn't brake because if I did, I, I was still going to hit it. I was that close. And so... I tried to steer away from it when I could, and I lost the car. And I tried to steer the other way, and, and the car wouldn't respond because, you know, the performance vehicle that the 79 Centuries, I'm surprised that it didn't respond. And so here I am, and I'm spinning. I think I spun three or four times because I saw the same car like three or four times as I was going. And so as I'm skidding, everything slows down, and I'm in slow motion. And I actually have conversation in my head during the slow motion time, like, okay, God, um... 
forgive me of my sins. I think I'm coming. And so here I am. Everyone's going the maximum speed limit, right? Which we know is 85 in LA. And so everyone's going. It's 60 West Freeway. I'm in the slow lane. The ladder comes down. And I go across four lanes of freeway spinning. And my rear bumper hits the median and I start skidding. And still, this is all slow motion. It's like... And I see like sparks coming out here and smoke. And I'm on the right corner of, of my passenger rear. is just skidding. I'm kind of skidding along here. And, and then I see a car in front of me on the fast lane. So I'm skidding this way and this car's coming this way. And it's coming closer really fast. And it, everything's in slow motion. All I can see is the woman. <laughs> Real slow. Slow motion. I was like, my face is probably like that too. And so... We're skidding this, and I see the smoke coming out of her car there, and I'm skidding, and there's smoke and spark coming out of this, and we stop. No accident. Four lanes of freeway. Some people call that luck. I call that God's providence, because I'm a child of God. And even though I was a child of God back then, I turned my car around, And I went looking for that truck with the fury and the mouth of a sailor. And I was praying for a sick Egyptian to lead me to where that truck was because I was going to take it out and take that spoil. I've since repented. So in in times of trouble, in times of trouble, we live by God's providence. right? There are things that happen like ladders falling off of trucks or, or Egyptians out in open spaces that seem like nothing until you kind of see the outcome. Where you can look back at what happened and see that God was at work and He was providing for me in a merciful twist, or in my case, merciful twists. And there are times that we need to be reminded that we're not abandoned by God. That He is right there for me. That His mercies are there for me. And it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. What is this in reference to? This is in reference to Epaphroditus, right? Epaphroditus, who was sent by the Philippian church to take care of Paul while he was in prison, and Epaphroditus was helping Paul and caring for Paul, ministering to Paul while he was there, but he got sick. He got sick and the Philippians were distressed to hear that the guy that they sent to care for Paul became sick himself. So now what's going to happen to Paul? right? Our our beloved Paul, who, who brought the gospel to us, who discipled us, who pastored us, who shepherded us, who's going to take care of him? And then Paul was also in distress because he really did need Epaphroditus to take care of him. But verse 27 tells us that God had mercy on Epaphroditus. And Paul also says he had mercy on him, lest sorrow upon sorrow would fall upon him. Which is true, because he really did need his help. And this is what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. You see how David was having sorrow upon sorrow in his life. Just start back in chapter 18. You see all this sorrow following David through all of it. Chapter 18 to, to chapter 30. And this sometimes happens to children of God. And sometimes God mercifully keeps us from sorrow upon sorrow, but sometimes He doesn't. And when this happens, our troubles seem to be beyond our endurance. 
beyond what we can bear. But God is merciful. God is merciful. Verse 21 through 25. Let's take this next section here. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away with his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. You see how people of God live by grace? We live by grace. David took 400 men with him. He left 200 men at Bezor. And you recall that these guys were marching for days. Right? They marched three days to Aphek. They marched three days back. These guys were marching for days. And he left 200 men behind because they just couldn't take it. They're exhausted. They had to march with all this gear and stuff. It wasn't just like taking a hike. They had all their fighting gear ready for them. They had their provisions with them. They're hiking a long ways and back. And not only that, there's this emotional toll that when they saw the Ziklag burning in fire, that was a toll also. And so they were left at the brook Bezor. And while these guys come back with their families and they come back with the belongings and all this spoil and they're, they're all happy, these 400 guys, but some of these 400 guys are just punks. Punks. They don't want to share the spoil. That Take your family, take your wife and kids. We're keeping the rest. We did the fighting, right? And so they just didn't want to share anything else. They didn't want to share that wealth for them. So how did David respond? Verse 23, You shall not do so, my brothers. What does that mean? Your brothers. We're brothers. You can't do that to each other. With what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Do you notice what drove David? It was a community, right? My brothers. But do you notice something else here? Do you notice how he thinks? What's foremost on his mind? Yes, it's community. Yes, it's his brothers. But he says, the Lord has given us. He has preserved us. Right, some of these, these 400 guys coming back thinking that they did it. They deserve the spoil, right? They took it back. They fought for it. That They preserved themselves. They preserved their families. They preserved their, their own belongings and brought everything back. That it was up to them to divide the spoil. That it was up to them to figure out who deserved what and, and how to make those kind of claims. This wasn't David. David acknowledges that the spoil was from the Lord. The Lord gave it to them. The Lord protected them. The Lord preserved them. God is given the credit. Man is not taking the credit. This is David. God gives the credit. And some of his 400 guys are wanting to take the credit. And the things given was was out of grace. It, It was God's gift of grace. And these guys didn't see it that way. They saw it as, we took back what we wanted. And what we deserved and what was taken from us, we got it back and, we, and then some. But for David, this was grace. 
And for David, this was more than a concept. This was more than just an idea. It had to do more with just this idea of God. This was dealing with a relationship with God. Really knowing who God was. And sometimes we quote Ephesians 2.8, right? Where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And so some may think that it's just when you enter the kingdom of God that it's God's grace, that it's God's doing, that it's God's gift because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, dying for you, and then resurrecting from the grave three days later, which is all right. Of course it is. It's in the Bible. But it's not just when we enter the kingdom of God. It's not just that point. Right? We, we always live by the grace of God. It's for the rest of our lives. It's not just at that beginning point. That is not the only gift of grace that the Lord gives us. It's not something we enter and then we just leave behind. God's grace exists for our entire pilgrimage in this life. And that's the difference with David. David thinks grace. It's not just a doctrine. It's not just an idea. It's not just a a concept for him. Grace reigns over all of life. And David acknowledges that what they were given were these gifts from God that even though they didn't deserve them, they don't deserve those spoils back. They didn't deserve their families back. It was God's grace that gave those things back to them. All of a believer's life is lived under God's grace. In Job chapter 1, Job loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his property, he loses his family, he loses everything. And in Job chapter 1 verse 21, Job says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are we at a place where we see that all of life is a gift of God's grace? Everything we're given is a gift of God's grace. And everything that we have is within this gift of God's grace. And if all of life is a gift of God's grace and and He recalls His gift, do we really have a claim on it? He gave us something we never deserved anyway. That's what grace is. We're giving something we don't deserve. Can we then say, I do deserve it, but you never did deserve it. It was grace, right? Can you really say, that's mine? When you never deserved it, He's just gifting to you something you don't deserve. Can you say, that belongs to me? That dog belongs to me. I can't. Right? Doesn't God have the sovereign rights over His gifts? And if a gift that was given by God is taken away by God, do we really have a claim to it? No. Because we never deserved it. It was a gift of grace. Because everything He was given was a gift of grace. Meaning none of it was deserved. So grace is when when you're given something you don't deserve. So how can you lay claim to something you've never deserved? And some of us may struggle with this, and and it may not be an easy thing to accept. But if we think about God's gifts as grace, things that we don't deserve, it might help us understand what's happening in our lives when things are taken away, when things don't work out, that when we're in the midst of our troubles, that we still live by grace. We live by grace with what God has given us. So, so if it's simply just a meal or something more meaningful like your spouse or your children or our shelter or our, our just common things or our pets, our education, our jobs, 
all of it is God's gift of grace. Things we don't deserve. And to live by grace so so we don't have an attitude that we deserve something from God, that God owes us something. God has given us more than we deserve. He has given us graciously. So we live by providence, we live by grace, and we live by wisdom. So this is the third thing I want to share here. And I want to take verses 26 through 31 here to address living by wisdom. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and the Negev and Jatir and Eroer and Sifmoth and Eshtemoa and Rakal and the cities of the Jeremielites and the cities of the Kenites and Horma and Borashan and Athak and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. What did David do here? You guys notice this. I wish I had a map of all this place because... But I don't. When he got back to Ziklag and he took the spoil back from the Amalekites that that they took from Ziklag and everything that he could have kept for himself, but there was more than that, right? Because they sacked other towns. So there was more than just what they took from Ziklag. What did David do? What did he do? He sent presents to various places. Where are all these places? These are all territories in Judah. Where was Judah? Judah is David's home turf. This is where he's from. These are his people. That's where he and other tribes, but of the same people. This this is all his kin. These are all people of the southern kingdom. So what David is doing here is he's sending spoil back to these people who probably lost property and lost things to these same Amalekites. He's sending them stuff from this spoil that he's just collected. And so we're given all these towns, right, in, in verses 27 through 30, and most of these places are around Hebron. They're in the southern part of Judah. So David sends these spoils as gifts to all these people. Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So you see this act of generosity was something that proved to be really helpful to David in the future because if you jump over to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, what does it say? And the men of Judah came. These are all guys from Judah. These, all these cities from Judah. And, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. You see what he did? This is a bright cookie right here. Right? The, the, the men of Judah anointed David over their tribes, right? Of course they did. Of course they did. If that guy can give me those things when he didn't have to, I want him as my king. Wouldn't you want that too? Everyone in Oakland, you own a home, and if, you're in, if your home's in foreclosure, we we'll wipe it out, and I'm running for mayor. You're my mayor. <laughs> of course! Right? And so David took care of them in 1 Samuel chapter 30. He hooked them up, right? He, he won their support. And, and how so? Think about this. I lost family to those Amalekites. I lost property to those guys. They took my life savings. They took my living. And here's David generously giving his own spoil, which he didn't really have to, to those people who lost a lot. And for some, he was returning to them just what they had lost. Right? It was just a return of their possessions. And some may be thinking that, man, David's just being political. 
He's just, he's just paying them off for their kingship. I think, yeah, he's being political, but I don't think that's wrong. I think we attach a negative connotation. Oh, he's being political. Jesus was political, wasn't he? Paul was political, wasn't he? David's political. He's just working this stuff to be wise with what he had, right? There was nothing evil about this. There's nothing evil here. There's nothing underhanded going on here. This was above board stuff, and it worked for David politically. And there was nothing wrong with this. So what does this tell us? This tells us that we can be sharp, that we can be smart, that we can be savvy without being sinful. Right? And, and when possible, we should be smart. We should be savvy. We should be sharp. God gave us a mind. We got to use it. God didn't tell us to check our brains out before entering a relationship with Him, right? Oh, Jesus, accept me. First, you got to get rid of your brain. Then you can come to me. He didn't do that, right? He, he wants you to think. He wants you to use your brain. We are to live by wisdom as children of God. And this was a wisdom that David exercised. He could have been selfish. He could have just been thinking about himself and his own people. David got this plunder, and, and, but he generously shared it with all the leaders in Judah. And these leaders are pleased with David's actions, and, and so now they want to anoint him king. It worked, right? There was nothing sketchy about it, though. What, what's underhanded about that? It's just really wise. Really wise. Now, isn't this what Jesus told us to do in Luke chapter 16, verse 9? Right? And this is kind of where I, I'm going to share with you that Jesus was political. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What? Jesus? What you tell me? Now, Jesus wasn't saying, go be deceitful or devious or dishonest with how you... He was telling us to do things in a smart, savvy, sharp way that is still right. That is not sinful. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And this is something for us to keep in mind whether we're in a ton of trouble like David was in or just in our daily living of our Christian life that we need to exercise wisdom. We need to use our brains. We need to be smart and sharp and savvy in how we live our Christian life. I have a friend that was redoing his driveway like years ago. And he's a pretty well-off guy, and he could have afforded to do this stuff, but he got rich for a reason. So he had to break up all the concrete in his humongous driveway, which is probably bigger than this sanctuary. He had to break up all the concrete, right? So he hired this company in to break up all the concrete. He wanted the concrete broken up. He wanted it repaved, but he didn't want to pay for getting rid of it. He's that way. Right? So all of this concrete is broken up all this place. Part of the, the job is to clear it so that these guys can repave it again. He was like, no, I don't want that. I don't want you guys to do that. These guys are like, what? What are you going to do? He's like, run your 4x4 four four over this stuff? It's just a bunch of broken concrete. So my buddy, he could have paid this company. It's not that he couldn't afford it. To load it up, to haul it away, dispose of it. But it would have cost him a lot of money to haul away that much concrete. And so... He didn't want to pay for that labor. He didn't want to pay for the disposal. He didn't want to pay for the machinery to efficiently lift those chunks of concrete. He didn't want to pay for the gas in those trunks to go to the dump site. So instead, he puts the concrete up for sale. Broken up concrete, he puts it up for sale. And then there was a company looking for fill in their project that paid him for that junk concrete. 
that he would have otherwise had to pay to get rid of. So he not only saved money, he got paid for it. They paid for his trash. Right? To lift those concrete, they they paid for that. They paid a good amount of money for it too. And at the end of the thing, he made a project by building a new driveway. Now, is that wicked? Is that deceitful? Is that sinful? It's wise. It's smart. Right? There's no reason that we can't as God's children, be wise, to be smart. There's no reason that Christians can't be innovative and creative in our living, in our ministry, in how we do life with our family. We are to use our mind that God has given us. And when the Bible talks about wisdom, there's this element of savvy to it. That there's a skill of godly living involved in wisdom. Living a godly life and living a skillful life isn't contradictory. They're not exclusive of one another. Living a godly life involves living with skill. It involves living with wisdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 16, Paul wrote, But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. But this wasn't so. He was saying, like, you say that. I don't see it as crafty. I don't see it as deceitful. Paul wasn't being deceitful in his actions here. He was being wise. He was being smart. He was being savvy. There's a skill we are to live by as Christians in our Christian life. Something that the church tends to do is it tends to chuck wisdom out the door for a different substitute. Right? So so one of those substitutes is power or emotion or feelings or, or, you know, that sort of stuff. Where we, we, we tend to want something that's more flashy or impressive or spectacular or immediate. While wisdom tends to be quieter. Wisdom tends to be a little slower, a little bit more thought out, a little bit more methodical. And we often want to see, feel, taste results right away. All the while we suffer from this deficiency in good old-fashioned wisdom. And I'm not saying we don't need the Holy Spirit. But there are some churches that focus solely on the Holy Spirit. And they just want the feelings and they want the emotions. But where's the wisdom? And then there are other churches that are, oh, we just want to think wisdom. We don't, we don't, we don't want to feel that stuff. We just think everything through. I think it's blended. And at times, you go more towards the spiritual-filled side, and at other times, you go toward this more wisdom side. But you don't just camp out on either one. You move, right? You groove. And so, Proverbs chapter 2. I won't read the whole thing. I'll read several verses from it, though. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandment with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inkling your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. We are to be shrewd and wise for Jesus. Not sinful. They're not exclusive. We can do both at the same time. And may we pray to God to to stimulate our creativity, our innovation in exercising wisdom. Wisdom in our Christian living, wisdom in in our ministries. So how are we to live? We are to live by providence. 
We are to live by grace. We are to live by wisdom. And lastly, from our text, we are to live by hope. Let's look back at 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Do you notice that David said, enemies of the Lord? He didn't say Judah's enemies, even though he was giving all those spoils to Judah. He didn't say David's enemies. He said, enemies of the Lord. Why? Because the Amalekites were God's enemies. You're like, how so? Well, we've gone over this a few times, but for those of you who have missed it, if you go back to Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're given this background information about the Amalekites. And you can read Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25 for yourself. But just for a quick summary, the Jews were former slaves of Egypt. They were set free by God, making their way to the promised land. And and on this journey from Egypt, some were really weak. Some were really sick. And they couldn't keep up with the main group. And so some of these groups, they were breaking off. They were branching off into these smaller groups that were traveling at their own pace and taking care of their own. And so they could kind of keep up. And so they were separated from the main group, though. And so the Amalekites... They'd just be like vultures. They'd wait for separation to be further so that this group couldn't come back to aid them. And so once that happened, this helpless, defenseless, weaker group was raided by the Amalekites. And they didn't just take their stuff. They massacred them. They slaughtered them. They slaughtered this weaker, defenseless group who couldn't fight back. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God told Moses that when you get into the promised land, you get settled in, I want you then to go destroy the Amalekites. Why? Because of what they did. How they prayed on the weak. How they barbarously slaughtered those Israelites who were defenseless against them. And because of what they did, they were being judged by God. A just judgment by God. And here David saw how God gave him victory over the Amalekites. And these aren't just people who burned Ziklag and took their family captive. That, that's not all that they did. These Amalekites were enemies of the Lord. And how did they become enemies of the Lord? They had dared to try and destroy the people of God who God chose to be His own people. And whenever God's flock is messed with, sooner or later, you have to deal with that flock's shepherd. And here you see the Amalekites meeting the shepherd of the Israelites. And God used David in that judgment. So you see what David was saying here? David was telling them that this wasn't just a simple military victory, guys. This wasn't just simply because they they came to Ziklag, burned everything, took our families captives. This wasn't just a successful mission to retrieve our families and our goods. These Amalekites are God's enemies. And this small victory given by God is evidence of a greater victory that is to come. That there is a hope in a greater victory to destroy all of God's enemies at the end. That this is only a small snippet of that. Psalms chapter 92 verse 9, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. David is saying that this is only an example of how God's kingdom will come into the world and that God will have a complete triumph. This is only a part. And what we as Christians deem as the second coming of Christ. The larger victory, the triumphal victory. So this is only a sample victory of the more complete victory that we will have in the future with the second coming of Jesus. 
So as we go through the scriptures, we have these, these two humanities, we have these two kingdoms, we have these two peoples, and every time there is this victory of God over his enemies, every time Jesus casts out a demon, every time someone comes to the light out of the darkness, it's an example, a snippet of God's kingdom. A slice of his kingdom and a foretaste of the ultimate victory that is to come later on. So do you see the importance of these smaller victories? Do you see the hope? Does it give you hope in the ultimate victory when Jesus returns? Jesus is giving us these small ones, pointing us to this main one. That he is returning and these smaller victories are reminders of the greater victory to come. You see the hope? Those are Lord's enemies. So see how he deals with it? But there's something greater. And we're going to have all these smaller things, but there's something greater. Jesus is coming back. And we see from the text how troubles may surround us, but it tells us how we should live in the midst of those troubles by providence, by grace, by wisdom, by hope. And if you go to the beginning of the chapter, you're going to notice that it begins with tragedy, but it ends in triumph. And you may be going through tragedy now. You may be going through something really tough right now, but God has a way in having it end in triumph. And you ask Him for triumph. So do you see the picture of the covenant king here in 1 Samuel chapter 30? If David is God's chosen king, then why is he suffering the way that he's suffering? From chapter 18 all the way to chapter 30, he's suffering. There's nothing but trouble and distress for his servant, his king. But if we look at someone greater than David, more so than the covenant king, let's look at the messianic king. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that interesting? How Zechariah describes the messianic king. So let's translate this a little differently from the ESV that we have in our pews, and let's translate it directly from the Hebrew. And verse 9 would read like this Look, Your king comes to you. He is righteous and having been saved. Afflicted. So not just humble. Afflicted. And riding on a donkey. Isn't that a really strange description of a king? That had to be saved? That was afflicted? The king, the messianic king here? Jesus? The messianic king is the one who is having to be saved? He was in difficulty. He was in crisis, and he had to be rescued. What kind of king is that? He was afflicted? He was riding on the foal of a donkey? That's a weird king. I don't know if I could be under that king. Right? But, but this is the type of king we can submit to. right? Because if he is this kind of a king, he knows our circumstances. He knows our situations. He knows our case and what we're going through. We can trust ourselves to a king like this. We have troubles around us and we live by providence. We live by grace. We live by wisdom. We live by hope. Trusting in a king who knows and understands what we're going through because he chose to suffer for you. He chose to go through that stuff. He chose to need to be saved. Let's pray. Lord, you yourself suffered. And you even asked your Father to remove that cup from you. And the understanding that you have 
of the suffering that we go through, you completely understand. And it's not to say that you're weaker because you needed that or, or it's, it, you're not weaker because you were afflicted or that you rode on a donkey. It's things that you chose to just give us a better understanding that you didn't choose to come here to breeze through life as a privileged king, but you came to be a suffering servant. And we thank you for that, God, because you, you truly understand us. You truly can empathize with the things that we go through in our life. And thank you for designing it that way. You were wise. And you truly understand what we're going through. And because of that, we can come to you in confidence to live a life of providence and of grace and of wisdom and of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.